Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. Wow, buddy! You look healthy and happy. Veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. That's why he developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Hmm. Maybe I should try some of your pet food myself. Okay, okay. I'll start with a salad. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. On a mild autumn afternoon in 2002, Dozens of people crammed into the small, stuffy auction room of Dublin estate agents Lowe and Associates. A few properties were up for sale that day, but it was pretty obvious that the majority of the crowd was there for two in particular. A penthouse apartment in the IFSC and a mansion in County Meath. Bidding for the luxury apartment started at a frenzied pace, with 11 different parties competing against each other. With the start price of €400,000, it finally went under the hammer to an English bidder for an impressive €555,000. The mansion, set on four acres in Pitchfordstown, was slower to move. After starting off at a rather modest €700,000, it did eventually reach a final bid of €910,000. The auctioneer, John Lowe, consulted with his clients before announcing to the room that the property was worth over a million and for the moment it was being withdrawn from auction. Despite the mansion not selling, Chief Superintendent Felix McKenna was happy. As head of the recently established Criminal Assets Bureau, this was exactly the kind of result his new department was looking for. Not only had they made a decent amount of cash, but the auction had generated plenty of good coverage for the work they were doing. The public now had a better idea of what their purpose was, and the criminals now knew they were coming after their spoils. And he was confident too that the five-bedroom mansion in Meath would soon sell, especially now that it was common knowledge that both properties had for a short time been the homes of one of the biggest cocaine dealers in Europe. He remains an A-list star of the criminal underworld. A gangster so wily that he travelled the world, amassed a hundred million euro fortune and died not from a bullet, but from his love of a sun-kissed tan. Dubbed the Pimpernel for his ability to elude the law, 
Mickey Green's life personifies the changing face of organized crime over five decades. From the Costa del Crime to California and the hills of Colombia to the rugged Irish countryside, he traveled the world while negotiating drug deals, bat scams and sensational robberies. Written by Jenny Friel, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited and narrated by me, Nicola Talent, this is a three-part Crime World special. The Life and Times of Mickey Green. Part One. Mickey Green was a criminal superstar with a reputation worthy of several different nicknames. The Pimpernel, thanks to his talent at disappearing just as he was about to be captured, and the octopus, because his reach in the drugs world was so extensive. He was the inspiration behind films such as Sexy Beast, the 2000 crime drama starring a permatand Ray Winston strutting around in a pair of canary yellow speedos. It's thought the character of criminal mastermind Tommy Hunter in the hit TV show Line of Duty was also based on Green, who many believe had a bunch of bent coppers on his payroll. Green was audacious and unrelenting. He loved the high life and did little to hide the fact that he was pulling in huge sums of money. One associate described him as the original gold medallion man with a taste for the booze and the birds. But for almost two years in the mid-1990s, he lived a relatively modest existence here in Ireland. Okay, there was a mansion in Kildare, And there was a penthouse apartment in the Dublin Docklands with questionable decor. But to most of those he met here, he was simply a wealthy, retired English businessman with an impressive collection of luxury cars and a love of horse racing. Not all that unusual, really, among the privileged Irish horse, he said. And he wasn't the only foreign criminal to settle in Ireland during the 1990s. Because for a short time, several major underworld figures made their home here. Attracted by the proximity to the UK and, of course, our extensive rugged shorelines, which offered excellent smuggling opportunities. In the pre-online era, they could live here in relative anonymity, presenting themselves as successful businessmen with huge wads of cash to spend on properties and new investments. Some of them were happily welcomed into their new towns and cities, with locals blissfully unaware of their grim and violent backgrounds. But more of them later. After Mickey Green killed a Dublin taxi driver in a drunken driving incident in 1995, and it emerged who he really was, he found himself swiftly dumped by his new friends. He also came to the attention of the IRA, who some say were unhappy at his callous attitude towards the family of the taxi man he had killed. It's more likely that they wanted a cut of his action. And so Green fled once again, back to Spain, this time with his 21-year-old Irish girlfriend in tow. Just another extraordinary episode in the charmed life of a criminal mastermind who seemed to rely on luck as much as his wit and audacity. There are those, however, who believe that Green's amazing ability to evade capture 
was down to him being a major informant who ratted out some of his global criminal connections to various law enforcement agencies in return for his own freedom. One of his former colleagues and pals was Freddie Foreman, an ex-gangster and one-time member of the infamous Cray Twins London gang, The Firm. Freddie is now 90 years old and used to be known as Brown Bread Fred, a nod to his talent for getting rid of dead bodies. In Freddie's words, there were rumours Mickey was an informant because of the way he managed to have it on his toes for so long. Back in the 60s, Freddie's old gang, The Firm, ruled the streets of London's East End. But by the time the 80s came along, he was laying low on the Costa del Sol in Spain. In the days before extradition orders, it was the top spot for criminals on the run and it was there that he met Mickey Green. Mickey was a mover with fingers in different pies and had plenty of money, he recently explained. He liked the good life and had a conveyor belt of different birds, all good sorts. He was very laid back and wasn't heavy in any way. I don't think he was a grass and never heard anything to remotely suggest it. It's a little surprising that old brown-bred Fred wasn't aware of the long-held suspicions about Mickey. But maybe there really is a code, or as some people refer to it, an omerta, an honour amongst thieves. You never talk, especially not to the police. For a while, Mickey Green was one of the most prolific and successful crooks on this side of the Atlantic. So it's possible that Freddie was still enthralled to his legendary status. After all, Green's career spanned more than six decades. From the heyday of gangland London, when robbing banks was all the rage and gangsters were treated like celebrities, to the sun-soaked excesses of the European drug cartels of the 80s and 90s, when over-tanned crime bosses worked freely along the Costa del Sol, partying with the rich and famous in exclusive clubs that they often owned. Mickey Green saw it all. He was a progressive kind of a criminal, happy to move with the times, dipping his toe into whatever he thought might bring in some cash. And he was also ruthless. It's suspected he ordered at least two murders of one-time colleagues who ripped him off. To last as long as he did in a world where there's no room for weakness or compassion tells you everything you need to know about Green. He was a hard case, who boasted about the buzz he got from living a life of lawlessness. In between the mega drug deals, he was canny enough to invest huge sums of money in legitimate and successful business ventures. He could easily have gone legit himself, but there was a thrill in pulling off the perfect heist or negotiating a massive narcotics trade. The riskier, the better. Born in 1942, Mickey John Paul Green grew up in Harrowweld, a suburb in the northwest of London that was stuffed full of Irish immigrants. He gave little away about exactly how Irish he was, but we do know it was enough to get him a green passport, something that was to prove invaluable at a later point in his life. By the time he was 19 years old, he was married to Carol, and officially he was working as a car salesman. But the reality was, he was already leading a life of crime. And what a time to be a crook. It was the golden age of the London underworld. 
Gangs ruled the streets, extorting money out of anyone who owned shops, restaurants, pubs or clubs on their patch. They pulled off lucrative heists with abandon, rarely getting caught. They felt invincible and spent their earnings not caring that everyone knew why they were rich. They dressed sharply too and dated glamorous women. Top of the pile, of course, were the Cray twins, Ronnie and Reggie, who terrorised the city while also hobnobbing with politicians and entertainment stars at their prestigious West End nightclubs. Other gangs of that era included the Dixons and the Tibbs, the Arif family, the legal and general gang led by Reggie Dudley and Bob Maynard, and the Knight family, to name just a few. As a detective from the famous Flying Detective Division of the London Met once said, fighting crime in London was like trying to swim against a tide of sewage. You made two strokes forward and were swept back three. For every villain you put behind bars, there were always two more to take their place. In the late 60s and early 70s, armed robberies throughout the city were rife. It was also a time of massive corruption within the Met Police Force, with officers taking bribes in exchange for turning a blind eye to various criminal activities or fabricating evidence against whoever was picked to take the fall for the latest heist. For a while, it seemed like crime gangs had it all sewn up. They were untouchable, raking in hundreds of thousands of pounds with little chance or fear of ever getting caught. One of the most prolific was the Wembley mob, who in four years alone netted a cool £1.4 million. Now that's around £20 million in today's money. And Mickey Green was a proud and integral member. The Wembley mob specialised in armed and violent robberies and pulled off some of the most daring heists in British criminal history. But their downfall came when their leader, Bertie Smalls, dobbed them all in to save his own skin. In fact, Smalls is often credited with being Britain's first supergrass, paving the way for future crooks to do deals for shorter prison sentences. And it's probably where Mickey Green learned the value of being a snitch. In early February 1970, the Wembley mob raided the Barclays Bank in Ilford, East London, getting away with almost £240,000, Now, that was a record amount at the time. It was such a big job and caused such a fuss that straight after the robbery, most of them fled abroad to wait it out until it was safe to return. Each of them left a different way, using ferries, trains and planes to get to the Costa del Sol, where they laid low and read English newspapers for updates on how the police were getting on with investigating their audacious crime. In the meantime, in April 1972, a new police commissioner called Sir Robert Mark was appointed to the London Metropolitan Force. Now, Mark was a former British Army captain from Manchester, and he was the first Met commissioner to have risen through the ranks from the very bottom to the very top. He was forward-thinking and straight-talking, and his appointment to the Met came at a crucial time. Their criminal investigation department had been rocked by scandals of massive corruption. Dozens of detectives had been found to have done deals with with bank robbers, drug dealers and pornographers. So when Mark took over, 
one of his first goals, as he famously explained, was to arrest more criminals than we employ. In the first year of his reign, almost 500 officers voluntarily left the Met. He was determined to tackle gang crime, and after hard graft by his officers, and probably some inside information, they figured out exactly who was in the Wembley mob, and discovered that they were hiding out in Spain. They knew they would all eventually return to London because not only were they cocky, but given the lavish lifestyles they led, they would all need to make more money. It took a while, but the police instincts were right, and the first to get picked up was the leader, Bertie Smalls, who they found in a suburb of Northampton in December 1973. Smalls spent that Christmas in prison, where he was told by his lawyer that if he was convicted, he was facing a sentence of at least 25 years. Desperate to stay out of jail, by early January 1974, Smalls asked to speak to the police inspector over his case. And he suggested striking a deal where in exchange for his freedom, he would name and testify against every one of those who'd been on the Barclays bank job with him. Not only that, but he'd also hand over every criminal he'd ever worked with. It was the most dramatic and effective arrangement ever done between a criminal and the director of public prosecutions. And it led officers straight to Mickey Green's house in Edgware in North London. When arrested, he's reported to have exploded, screaming at the detectives, someone's lost their bottle. Smalls was given his full immunity in return for the damning evidence at the three-month-long trial in early 1974. The entire crew of the Wembley mob were found guilty and handed down prison sentences that came to a total of 106 years. It was simply a stunning victory for the police. And it wasn't without its dramatic moments. As Smalls stepped down from the witness box, his former colleagues and friends sang to him an old Vera Lynn hit. Walking out of the courtroom, his ears must have been ringing at those menacing lyrics. We'll meet again. Don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. One of those singing to him that afternoon was 32-year-old Mickey Green, who received a sentence of 18 years. But he didn't even serve half the stretch in jail, and by the early 80s he'd been released and was free in more ways than one. His wife Carol had divorced him while he was behind bars. Once out of jail, he went straight back to his old ways, reuniting with one of his Wembley mob pals, Ronnie Dark. The duo got involved in an ingenious and highly lucrative VAT scam, which was one of the first ever rackets involving gold Kruger Rand, South African gold coins that weigh exactly one ounce. Green and Dark flew vast amounts of Kruger Rand, which were exempt from VAT, into Britain using a private jet. They then melted them down into gold ingots or bars and sold them to bullion houses, making sure to charge them that. In just six months, they made more than six million euro in today's money. And really, it was a beautifully simple shakedown, one which customs quickly copped onto. Once rumbled, Green fled to the Costa del Sol in Spain again, which still had no extradition treaty with the UK. It's here that he discovered the world of drug smuggling and became one of the leading figures in the 1980s international narcotics ring. The rewards for his labour were instant and immense and Green really enjoyed showing them off. 
There was a luxury penthouse apartment in Tory Molinas, a white Rolls Royce and a red Porsche, which he liked to zoom around Porta Benus in. He bought the obligatory yacht and became a regular in Marbella's most exclusive restaurants and clubs. By the mid-1980s, he was worth tens of millions of euros, and he'd added 11 yachts and half a dozen luxury cars to his collection of toys. Describing himself as a car dealer, he bought a huge villa on the outskirts of Marbella and became a part owner in a club on the harbour in Porta Benus, where he would spend his nights chasing glamorous young women. A lot of people locally had an idea of who he was and what he did, and there were even rumours that he'd buried huge amounts of cash around his properties. It was common knowledge that the money from the Barclay Bank robbery had never been fully recovered. But crime world figures on the Costa del Sol were nothing new, and for several years Green was able to enjoy his status as a major player in full view of the authorities. He hit the headlines again briefly in the early 1980s when he was accused of kidnapping a wealthy businessman. But the case against him was thrown out and he was left alone again to continue building up an empire based on running drugs from North Africa into Europe. In 1987, his life of pleasure on the Spanish coast was seriously disrupted when he was arrested by Spanish police after they seized two tons of hashish. Somehow, he got bail and fled to Morocco, leaving behind all his properties, his cars and his yachts. But within a few months, he popped up again, this time in Paris, where after being alerted by Interpol, French police swooped on his apartment in the left bank. There, they found vast amounts of cocaine and gold bullion. But the Pimpernel had once again made his escape. A French court later sentenced him in his absence to 17 years in jail for drug smuggling and possession. In 1993, another court, this one in the Netherlands, handed him down a 20-year prison term for smuggling hashish, again in his absence. And by this stage, Green was happily based in California where he was living in a rented Bel Air mansion, which, in a pretty mad twist, used to belong to the Scottish pop star Rod Stewart, a fact that Green must have reveled in. The authorities in LA were fully aware of who he was. On a number of occasions, he was observed meeting with members of the Colombian cartels and with the US mafia. He had truly hit the big time, negotiating drug shipments that were worth tens of millions of dollars. But in 1994, it looked like his luck might finally have run out when he was linked to a one-ton shipment of cocaine worth £200 million. And it was seized by customs at Birkenhead in Merseyside after being shipped from South America through Poland. In a scene worthy of a Martin Scorsese gangster film, the FBI smashed into Green's Californian mansion and arrested him in his swimming togs while he was lounging by the pool with a young girlfriend. Uh, He spent the next 10 months in jail in San Francisco and had assets worth more than $1 million seized by the US government. But Green, brazen as ever, got half of the assets back after filing a lawsuit against the investment firm that handed them over to the authorities. The Americans arranged to extradite him to France, where he was set to start his 17-year-long prison sentence. But in what was probably one of his boldest moves, and one that is particularly interesting to us, he managed to escape before they got him to Paris. 
Now remember how he had enough of an Irish background that entitled him to that Irish passport. Well, that worked to his advantage beautifully when the plane transporting him to France stopped over at Shannon to get refueled. And there, he simply walked off and using his passport, waltzed through customs and made his way to Dublin, where he had plenty of underworld contacts. It does make you wonder how he managed it or who allowed him to do it. Written by Jenny Friel, produced by Ian Mullaney, and edited and narrated by me, Nicola Talent, this is a three-part Crime World special. The Life and Times of Mickey Green. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.